And I feel like it's a deep Jewish value to be a learner, a lifelong learner and have a growth mindset. And my work in evaluation and strategy is very much about how can we find new solutions to intractable problems. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Faith Worski president and director of the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation, a JFN member based in Atlanta, Georgia. Before joining the Blank Family Foundation in February 2021, Faye served as the vice president of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, where she created, launched, and led Hewlett's Effective Philanthropy Group, an internal team dedicated to organizational effectiveness and responsible for guiding strategy, evaluation, and organizational learning. Faye holds two bachelor's degrees in Middle Eastern Studies and Rhetoric with high honors from the University of California, Berkeley, and a master's degree in city planning from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She and her wife, Jill, have two children, Jazz, a rabbinical student, and David Nathan, a college student. In our wide-ranging conversation, Faye and I talked about everything from the critical role philanthropy played in the LGBTQ rights movement to participatory grantmaking to strengthening grantmaker grantseeker relationship, which is the focus of Granted, a project Jeff and runs in partnership with Abster. Take a listen. Hi, Faye. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here with you, Andres. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You, you've been in the field for a long time, but how did you get started in this field? Did you ever think that was going to be the field you would be in? And by field, you mean philanthropy. Correct. Yeah. And specifically Jewish philanthropy then. Yeah. I never really thought I would be in philanthropy. <laughs> Partly nobody, I don't think it grows up thinking I'm going to be in philanthropy. Nobody really knew what that was when I was growing up, but I grew up in a pretty modest uh, home. We were working class, uh, at least. Um, you know, we were always charitable, but um, I never really knew from philanthropy. And even as I grew in my career, it was involved with nonprofits and foundations, working on issues of strategy and evaluation and organizational development. I never actually had uh, the desire to go inside and work for a foundation. Tell me, so you said you you were working class background. Where, where was that? Where in the world? Yeah, Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia. Oh. Um, my uh, grandfather came over to this country. Um, my father also was born over in Russia. Um, and uh, my grandfather is a rabbi. I come from a long line of rabbis. The Tversky family is big rabbinic family. So uh, I know you're settled in, in Philadelphia. He had a shul in Philadelphia. I grew up in an Orthodox community in Philly. So the leap to the Jewish field, I, I, I don't know if it's surprising, but it's not a crazy step. It's not out of, out of bounds for you. Well, I'm deeply Jewish identified. I didn't really go that 
the Jewish route professionally, I would say. Like that was not an ambition of mine. It just so happens that uh, along the way, I had the opportunity to work for some people who are Jewish and had, you know, Jewish interests. Um, right. But also secular interests. So Gates, right. the Gates family are not Jewish. The Hewlett family are not Jewish. But I've done both, I guess, is what you could say. Yeah. But, but do you think that coming from the family background you're coming from and having sort of absorbed part of that, do you think that in any way does this Jewish identity or those Jewish values colored or or somehow determined your interest for, you know, social good? Yeah, without a doubt. I, I always say uh, just there are three values that really drive everything that I do, both, you know, professionally, but also uh, personally. And those really uh, were derived from my upbringing. So even though I don't practice Orthodox Judaism in the same way that my family and community did, I still uh, hold those values dear. And there are three of them. And the first is tikkun olam, you know, to heal and repair the world. And I have always uh, structured my my career, my professional pursuits to make a contribution to repairing the world. The second is around learning. And, and I feel like it's a deep Jewish value to, to be a learner, a lifelong learner and have a growth mindset. And my work in evaluation and strategy is very much about how can we find new solutions to intractable problems? And, and you're not gonna find solutions to hard to solve problems uh, without looking at those problems from many different perspectives. It's taking almost a Talmudic approach to saying, right. well, how can we actually solve the challenge of you know, the achievement gap or climate change or a broken democracy? You're not going to find it on one side of the aisle or the other. You have actually have to look uh, at the complexity and, and come up with new solutions. Uh, so Talmudic what? in the way that you ask the questions, but action-oriented in the way that you then go about trying to address them. And then the third value uh, is really family. And um, there was a period of my life I didn't know if I was going to have my own family, but I do now. And even though I'm blessed with a great career, my family is the most important thing. And I always try to support the people who work for me to also um, have full lives and families. That Jewish approach, quote unquote, you try to use in, in non-Jewish foundations. <laughs> yeah. And how does the work in a non-Jewish, in a secular foundation compares with the work in a Jewish foundation? Yeah, well, it's hard to draw, you know, you'd have to make big generalizations um, to answer your question. But uh, because there isn't just one type of Jewish foundation and there isn't just one type of secular foundation. They come in all, in all stripes. Um, yeah. but I, but I would say the closest to a generalization I could, I could make, I would say that the Jewish world is more relational. So I was really struck by this most when I was in Israel and, um, I would meet nonprofit leaders and I talked to funders and everybody knew everybody and was related to everybody and everybody's friend was cousins with the leader of the organization. Right. It was all so familiar um, and relationship. We call it one degree of separation. <laughs> it was. And, you know, it's true here in the States too, but it was really true there. And 
and and the relationships are are deep and strong and there's real value to that. Um, but the downside is it's not always as systematic uh, and as rigorous. You know, so I think the, the secular, the non-Jewish uh, foundations are more likely to be a little bit more systematic and rigorous and a little bit less relationship driven. So I think probably the um, they could learn from each other. Right, and and we could we could instill some professionalism into the into the Jewish foundations, and as many of our colleagues are in the field, you know, thinking of folks that came from the secular world, you know, the first that came to mind is Darren McKeever from the Davidson Foundation, yeah. that you probably know from from his days. Mm -hmm. Right, so so the, this he's bringing a whole new approach and he's fascinated by that weight of relationships and the emotional aspects of of the work and and that but it makes me think of something like that there there seems to be that there are also with this business of relationship versus scientific approach there seem to be two schools of thought there right like one says listen let's use data let's use hard scientific methods mm -hmm. to decide giving priorities and strategic philanthropies and, and the like. And there's the other that says, no, let's be really connected with the community. Let's work on the relationships and that, and let's guide our giving by, by that. Where do you fall in that continuum, let's say? Yeah, I reject the continuum. That is, I think, yeah, I think it's a false dichotomy, Andres. Say, say more. Yeah, to say that it, you can only be scientific or only relationship oriented. The truth is you actually have to be both. You know, if you, if let's just imagine, Andres, that you had $10 billion to give away, you know, would you want it to just, and you have to make choices. That's part of what you do when you're, you sit in a foundation is you have to make choices about what you give to, how much you give to it. Um, you have to understand which organization is well run to achieve the goals that you and they have in common. So, you know, you want to develop trusting relationships, but you also want to have data. You know, you want to know, you know, are are these organizations really making a difference in in people's lives? Um, and you want to have the organizations want that data. So, I think it's it's really both. All right, but to push you a little bit, yeah, in a friendly way. What do you do when? the data is telling you something mm -hmm. and we see that a lot in issues of racial justice and, and social justice in general the data tells you one thing but the relations you have the live experiences of the people you're trying to help are telling a different story how do you articulate both mm -hmm. right or or and, and in the jewish work we we see it a lot like founders are in love with the relations we have in in terms of the programs they support, but the data tells them they're not the most effective. So, so how do you work with that? How do you how do you create something where both sides of the equation, as you can say, you can be both? Well, I always like to say data don't make decisions, people do. So right. you still have to use the data to make decisions. And if if there's an organization that you have a strong relationship with that you want to support, because let's just say it's where you're you know, your kid went to school and you believe in that school and your kid didn't go to another school. So you're not going to support right. that school. You're going to support right. this school, this after school, this, this synagogue program, whatever it is, um, this camp. 
And, and the data are telling you, you know, that actually this camp isn't that good, or it's good for these kinds of kids, but not these kinds of kids. Here are the kinds who thrive here, and here's who doesn't. And it's not the most well-run. Then you have a choice, and you can say, okay, I hear you. This is your philosophy. This is how you're trying to do it. The data are telling me uh, this isn't working so well. You can say, let's make it better. Let's make it better so that uh, we can actually shore up your operation. I trust you to do that. Uh, let's get data in here to help you engage in continuous improvement and we'll help you be you know, the kind of top organization that you wanna be that's really serving people's needs um, in the best, best way possible. Let me shift gears for a minute. You, you spoke openly about the experience of, of coming out and, 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 and what that meant for you. And if we broaden the lens a little bit, and I'm not an expert, but it looks to me that the acceptance of, of social change in terms of LGBTQ plus rights, it's stunning in a way. Like if you think about it in, in a decade, we moved from nothing to not everything, but a lot. Mm-hmm. So what do you think were the ingredients of that change? And, and can that change inform other movements to sort of achieve results, the type of results that, that were achieved in that, in that fight? Yeah, well, there's actually a lot written on that exact case of how did you move from where society's acceptance of LGBTQ marriage equality was when I was a kid, which was nowhere, you know, it was invisible, right. shunned, you know, uh, in a really bad place to where we are today. Um, and the marriage equality case, there's been a lot written about it. Um, one is there was, uh, you know, a lot uh, that led up to that decade of change. And I would say the AIDS epidemic in some ways set the table for that. You wouldn't want to have another right. epidemic, although we're in one now, pandemic. Right. But I do think, you know, the AIDS epidemic really did bring much more visibility into the community. And, you know, as they say in the social work, never waste a crisis. I think the community began to rally and form a lot more sort of public advocacy efforts around human rights and um, getting you know, public attention on the, the humanity required to address the epidemic. But the, the main thing that happened though, that really shifted uh, the marriage equality movement was the shift away from a rights-based narrative to a love-based narrative. And if you talk to the people who were leading that effort, uh, especially in the funder's seat, here's where um, this is going to challenge uh, conventional wisdom. Today's accepted conventional wisdom. The funders were the real drivers of that change. They were very kind of heavy-handed funders of, of this work. And they basically said this, this human rights narrative of, you know, we deserve you know, hospital visitation and we deserve the same rights. They did their own media analysis and found out that is not working. People are not responding to that. And they did their own focus groups. And the love is love came from the funders. And, you know, the funders who had been activists before then went into the funders seat. And they basically organized all the activists uh, to move in that direction. And the love is love narrative is what changed everything. 
That's amazing. So first of all, it also touches on what you said before about relationships, because one part of the thing is that there's somebody you love who can't be with the person they love. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and, and this idea that you have relationships, this is not an abstract problem. There are people you know, people that are in your life, people that you love. And then the, the, the second thing that this is like, my, my, my head is spinning now with what you said about rights, because I think that there is a lot of the social problems we have, what makes our society great, which is a rights-based society, it, it's also very limiting and very problematic because a rights-based society, when it's only rights and not love and not other sort of dimensions, it's a recipe for permanent conflict. Yeah. You know, my it's right clashes with yours. and Very polarizing. That was the shift that happened that, that brought together, you know, the conservative and the liberal sides where you had a Republican right. and Democratic lawyers arguing the case in the Supreme Court. So uh, interesting. So interesting. Tell me a little bit about, you know, we talk relationship, we talk live, lived experiences. And, and at JFN, we're dabbling. Of course, we, we don't have anywhere near the uh, experience we have, but we're dabbling in participatory grandmaking. We, we think that there's a lot to do in the Jewish community in terms of strengthening relations between grandmakers and grand seekers, mm-hmm. uh, opening more the, the grandmaking strategy to input from different sectors, making it more transparent, more participatory. I wouldn't say more democratic because it's never really democratic, but you know, to a certain degree. So what can you share about that work and what can we learn from the secular world on that? Yeah, I I would say um, there's a lot uh, more assertion about the goodness of participatory grant making than there is experience yet. And I think Uh people mean a lot of different things when they say participatory. So just as you were talking about participatory grant making, you were referencing, I think, the the grantees and how do we involve grantees in making decisions about where money goes or the communities that we serve. Sometimes yeah. the grantees, they have an organizational interest, but right. the, you know, the people, the, the actual clients of the work that we that we're trying to do. Yeah, so I, um, I think different people mean different things when they say participatory. I just use that as an example, because some people mean we want the leaders in the community, the grantees often, uh, those who lead civic organizations to, to come help make those decisions. Sometimes it's making those decisions. Sometimes it's informing those decisions. And sometimes it's the community. When I was at Hewlett Foundation, we had interest in doing some more participatory grant making. And I asked a couple of members of my team to do some analysis of participatory grant making. And did it lead to better results? What were the kinds of things that worked well with participatory and not? And what what they found was pretty interesting, which was that most of the participatory grant making that was happening was pretty small. So they were small, it was small sized money. Uh, the grants that participatory grant making efforts made tended to be small grants, one time project based, short term. So on the, on the one hand, there's a push to do more participatory, and that's what you get when you, when you hand over those decision rights to community members is you get these small one-time project-based funding efforts, 
as compared to the other side of conventional wisdom, uh, which is saying grantees need larger, long-term general operating support. Right, right. So those two are often more in conflict. In order to change what the participatory groups are deciding, you'd have to give them a lot more information. You'd have to help provide much more framing and context. And over time, when you do that, they become kind of more grant makers <laughs> and less right. just you know, representing community interests. So I think it's an interesting question. Under what circumstances do particip- does participatory work the best? Um, right. I would say under those circumstances where it's a smaller pot of money and uh, based on what we've seen so far, you're willing to give up all decision rights and, it, and it's okay if they end up with short project-based small grants. Very interesting because again, here it's it's all about balance. It's all about finding the right place between the doing both things at the same right. time. It's, it's it's the right tool for the right ambition. So right. you know, Mackenzie Scott is just dropping a lot of money on organizations that she thinks with some advisors are gonna do important things in the world and these funds are gonna help them think and do in new ways, imagine new possibilities and you know, they've got a track record. That's really different than participatory. You wouldn't say one is necessarily inherently better than another. You'd just say they're different. You know, if you need a hammer, you don't use a screwdriver. So there are different tools in our toolbox and you want to be thoughtful about when does participatory make a lot of sense? Under what conditions do we want to really use participatory? And we're, we're grappling with those questions too, because, you know, we have a program now called Granted, which is precisely about strengthening relations between grant makers and grant seekers. And it's very interesting because there are many dimensions to that. One dimension is what you said, when to give grantees more decision or influence or the like. But the other piece of it is, is how to make the grant making process better and friendlier and more user friendly yeah. in a way. And I think, you know, sometimes we, we think of the, you know, the big ideas, oh, democratic grant making and, and what grantees maybe they want is a simpler process. They don't need more than that. Yeah, because they want to do their work. They don't necessarily want to be grant makers if they didn't right. apply for these jobs. So right. I, I do think it's sort of like when venture philanthropy was getting started, every organization that these venture philanthropists gave to had to have you know a lot of engagement. And how much engagement can a grantee handle until they're over over-engaged? Um, one piece that I would say that I am a big champion for, you know, across the board is, you know, systematic ways to listen to the ultimate intended constituents of, of our services. So it's a cousin of participatory grant making. Right, which is, right, right. You know, how, how do you do that kind of systematic listening and responding? Any good way you've seen to do that? Yes. In fact, uh, about six or seven years ago, I helped start the Fund for Shared Insight, which is a funder collaborative uh, dedicated to creating more meaningful connections between funders, nonprofits, and the people and community we serve. And among the great things that Fund for Shared Insight now does is um, we started our signature uh, initiative is called Listen for Good. And it's a very simple feedback system uh, for nonprofits who are direct service nonprofits to listen to their clients and get systematic feedback in much the way that a business would get feedback from its customers. 
And the tool's got you know, five core questions. It's been tested. It is based and borrows from a business technology, the Net Promoter system, uh, but uh, it's adapted uh, for the nonprofit context. And we've now used it with I don't know, about I don't know, six, seven, 800 uh, nonprofits who've used it with their clients. So there's a big data set of feedback and you can compare similar kinds of feedback from a senior program to other senior programs or after school programs or safety net health clinics. Any organization that is uh, customer facing can use this tool and com- compare their results uh, to similar organizations and and get both quantitative and qualitative feedback about how people are actually experiencing their program. And there was some skepticism when we started it because people thought, well, you know, our nonprofit clients the same as business clients, but the truth is the tool has really held up. Nonprofit clients are discerning. They know when a program is good and when they're treated with respect and when they're not. And so the organizations that have gotten feedback from their customers have been able to make real changes as a result of getting that right. feedback and they've been able to disaggregate by race and gender and sexual orientation. They could see who's having better experiences and worse experiences with their services. And then they can share that feedback with the funders so that we have the benefit of that learning and can, and can also be informed. And, and a cousin of that is the, is the grantee perception surveys, right? A cousin of uh, that is the grantee perception survey, yeah. Yeah, we, we that, we've done that, uh, Jeff, and we, we entered into a partnership with the CEP for our members to do those those perception surveys in a, in a cheaper and, and more streamlined way. That's great. Well, all, full disclosure, I'm on the board of the Center for Effective Philanthropy, so I'm a, there big, you go. I'm a big fan of the Grantee Perception Report. I think it, it is provides useful data to really drive improved relationships. For, for the folks from outside the field, those surveys serve to measure what the grantees think, you know, in broad terms about the funders, about the grant makers, and, and, and in very specific dimensions that, are, that tend to be very, um, very useful for the funder to improve their operations and their relations with the grantee. Tell me about the move from the Bay Area to Atlanta, seemingly very different parts of the world. How did that work? Yeah, uh, it's been a great move. I love Atlanta. I lived in California for a lot of years. Um, There was a lot to love about California and the Bay Area, a lot of friends and community there and great colleagues. And so there are places and people I miss, but... The move to Atlanta has been great. Uh, No looking back. Um, I love uh, working with Arthur Blank and the family. Atlanta is a very vibrant, diverse, culturally dynamic city. Great food scene. (laughs) Really warm people. We've been very warmly welcomed. Just been a great move. And tell me a little bit about the Blank Foundation and the work that, that you're doing there. What, what are your goals? What are your main objectives there, especially uh, when it comes to Jewish giving? Arthur is amazing. He's an amazing leader, business leader and citizen, and um, has been a philanthropist for some time. I think started the foundation about 25 years ago and has uh, given around $800 million away so far. But 
part of his commitment is a giving pleasure is to give the majority of his wealth away. And he loves to, to do that uh, with his family. So his older kids are on the board um, along with associate directors, and they've identified uh, some new areas of giving that they are interested in, in giving to um, in the next decade when he really ramps up his giving to right. a new level. So I'll just briefly say that those new areas are the environment, including climate change, democracy, including voting rights, journalism, and then youth development, helping young people, particularly young adults, attach to the workforce and more opportunity. So I, th- those are three new areas of giving. I won't go into them now since you asked particularly, and we're developing strategies and hiring uh, leaders in each of those areas. But we also have a special fund uh, where we fund the Jewish community, and that's the Molly Blank Fund. And that is yeah. a fund that Arthur set up after his mother died to honor her. And uh, there are a few areas of giving that she was really passionate about. And one of those is the Jewish community. And so in that fund, we fund both in Atlanta and Phoenix where Arthur's brother lives. Um, And uh, we do a lot of funding through that fund to the Jewish community around social justice issues, access, affordability, um, and so forth. Everything from sort of ADL to Jewish theater ensemble and everything in between. You know, you talk about the particular, the Blank Foundation. Let's just broaden the lens again and, and see what are the trends that you see? Zero in on a number of like three, five big trends in philanthropy that you see that are going to be relevant also for Jewish philanthropy? One trend that uh, you know has been taking off in the last number of years, and I think will continue, is around funder collaboration. You know, mm-hmm. really effective funder collaboration where funders come together around an issue area where they want to aggregate capital to really make a difference, you know, develop strategies or sometimes often these, the best ones are staffed where they develop strategies to really make a difference in the area that these funders care about. And so some of the most well-known examples are uh, groups like the Blue Meridian Partners, uh, which began as a, as a vehicle for, some giving pledgers that didn't want to start their own big foundations, but wanted to have big impact. They uh, came together originally under the leadership of the Edna McConnell Clark Foundation to aggregate originally a billion dollars to address the needs of the most vulnerable young people in our nation. And they had a very simple model to find organizations that worked really well and help them scale nationally. That was so successful that they they started a second billion dollar fund and raised that money also to really make a difference together. And they've expanded now to some other areas, but they are uh, one of the largest and most interesting new models of giving. There's an analog for that uh, internationally. Co-impact is a similar kind of model that works to aggregate philanthropic capital and, and give it away for systems change 
work uh, in countries in different parts of the world around health and economic opportunity. There's a group that I helped start similarly called the New Pluralists, which is a group of that has brought together funders who care about supporting uh, pluralism in this country and uh, how we can address the crisis of connection in our nation. Those are just three examples of funder collaboratives where working together uh, can help you do more than working on your own. And I, I think that there's opportunity for the Jewish world to do more of that. I think we may have started off in that way. The federation model, you could say, was that people, Jews would give to the federation, uh, they would aggregate the capital and then make grants. Right, but the feeling ended up being that, you know, you're putting money into a quote unquote black box. And right. even though in a collaborative, the, the individual still retains her direct influence on whatever it's been decided yeah. and, and where the allocations are going. So maybe the, the funder collaborative is probably the next iteration and the next incarnation of the idea of collective giving in a time of hyper-empowered individuals that are not going to put money into a fund for somebody else to allocate, but are <laughs> going to create either a network, funders network, or a, yeah. or, a, or a partnership with others. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think they want to, the, the best collaboratives that I've seen make seats at the table for the funders who want to be at the table, understanding the decisions, making, you know, giving input into the decisions. They want to have good professional staff. So it's not like they don't want to be staff. They do, uh, but they want to be part of the active learning uh, that goes on. You know, they, they don't want to just be giving the money away to somebody and, and not knowing what happens. So I do think there may be a next generation for federations to do something more like this um, or, yeah. or the Jewish world separate from the federation model. What are the three things that you think are big challenges for us? Mm. And then three things that give you hope. They don't have to be three. It can be one or it could be five or whatever. <laughs> the number is not, number doesn't matter. But what, what, what things are the biggest yeah, challenges I, I we have? That, yeah. I would say the things that uh, worry me about philanthropy are the same things that worry me about the world. We tend to be in our own echo chambers. We tend to be as polarized in philanthropy as we are in our larger society. So, you know, there's there's the conservative groups, there's the more progressive groups, there's the, you know, groups, you know, that focus on, you know, have one ideology or another. And I think that that worries me, it worries me about our society, the, the loss of civility and connection between and among people who may hold different opinions for different reasons, uh, that we we stop listening to each other and engaging with each other and recognizing the shared humanity that we that we have. So that that's what worries me the most, um, I would say, about philanthropy. But what gives me hope is <laughs> that there are efforts to address this. The, the new pluralist group I was describing earlier is one that, you know, the funders. The funders group uh, is a group that 
crosses all ideology. That's very, very rare, but we need much more of it. And I would say the same is true in the Jewish community. There are there are fiercely held positions and camps in the Jewish community and in the Jewish funding world that it will be important for us to, to break through and find new ways to work together. I'm optimistic right. that we can. I'm optimistic by nature. <laughs> I still think yeah. peace is possible in the Middle East, but I do think it takes some deliberate take some deliberate effort. Right. So the recreation of the public square, the recreation of the the retissuing of the of the of the fabric of community in a way. Yeah. And what gives you hope then? You said you're optimistic. So yeah, what are your reasons for optimism? Look, it's a Jewish value to to argue, right? You know, three Jews, five opinions. That is part of our culture is to hold you know, look at just what I was talking about earlier. It is part of our value to look at problems from multiple perspectives and realize that no one point of view is going to just be the truth. So I, I think it is part of our fabric of our culture to uh, be more pluralistic uh, in the end and to really argue in civil ways with one another um, till we work through that argument to get to things that we might do together. My daughter, I'll tell you, my daughter is in a, um, just started rabbinical school at Hebrew College in Boston. And just, uh, it's a non-denominational rabbinical school. Now, how cool is that to have a non-denominational rabbinical school? Now, the Haredi wouldn't go there, but they've got, you know, reformed, conservative, orthodox people all studying for the rabbinate and, and then people who may be not even aligned. And we need more of that kind of model. Thanks so much to Faithworthy. You can learn more about the Blank Family Foundation at blankfoundation.org and more about Granted, our joint project with Upstart at www.jgranted.org. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback, both about this podcast, but in general, ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us, whatever you want to share with us. Please write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. Since we talked about democracy a lot in this episode, let me leave you with a quote from Reithold Newborough, who said, people's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but people's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. So keep supporting democracy, keep giving, and find us next time at What Gives. <laughs>